I invite the rest of you to join me in opening your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to John, where we will hear from Jesus today. It's uh, getting pretty lively in the earthly ministry of Jesus, as in there's a lot of conflict and there's a lot of tension. There's been conflict in his own family, conflict with religious leaders, conflict with those who were followers and no longer are followers. And here today, what we're going to hear from Jesus is Jesus driving home the point yet again, uh, specifically regarding who he is and therefore what he offers and what he uniquely offers. What he and he alone can offer. Really, these are matters of life and death, eternal life and, and eternal death. They're serious matters. I like to think of this passage as well as other passages in light of all the religions that we have in the world. Uh, seemingly, it's countless, uh, but the, the top ten religions uh, in order as far as size, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Judaism, Baha'ism, Confucianism, Jainism, Shintoism. Those are the top ten, and as you know, the ism list is really, 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 really long. And when we hear Jesus speak about himself coming from heaven, speaking authoritatively because of where he's come from, and making claims regarding you must believe in me or there is no eternal life, it should cause us to, to take, take note He's either a total fraud or he, he needs to be trusted in. Um, he, he really helps us to see how, how politically incorrect he is um, and how politically incorrect biblical Christianity is. Um, and, and he just simply can't be relegated to being a good teacher, teaching good principles and good morals. I will urge you to trust in Christ because I believe he is who he said he was and I think we'll, we'll see it time and time again. But really, these are very relevant issues and very eye-opening kinds of issues because while he's not directly addressing all of these other religions, um, indirectly he definitely is in, in his claims. And so keep that in mind. May today help you to look to Christ um, may it help you also to understand perhaps better how to communicate uh, the hope that's found in Christ even to other kinds of people. If you're taking notes today, we're going to be able to identify seven specifics about Jesus. Seven specifics about Jesus that everyone needs to know. And we'll see this in verses 12 to 30 in the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to John. Seven specifics about Jesus that everyone needs to know. As you're finding John 8, 12, if you haven't yet. Context is, uh, it's a feast. We talked about it last Sunday. Uh, that means it's a, it's a festival. It's a party. It's exciting. It's something you look forward to all year, round, all year long. It's a family event. It's when you can forget about your problems and difficulties and you come to Jerusalem and Jesus is at this point in time in the temple. He is speaking. We're going to hear him speak and hear him teach. Uh, in light of Mark chapter 12, uh, he is uh, not only in what's called the treasury in the temple, but he's in what's called the women's court. And from what we know from extra biblical sources, uh, that's where during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is this feast, 
where they would be celebrating what they called the Festival of Lights. Perhaps, we don't know for sure, um, acknowledging and remembering God's being with his people Israel during the Exodus uh, as a flame of fire. He's there with them. And it is something they celebrated, the, the Festival of Lights during the Festival of Tabernacles. And God is our light and God directs us and God guides us and God leads us into um, security. So keep that in mind. Specific number one, Jesus is the saving light. Jesus is the saving light. Look there in verse 12, that great statement that we're familiar with if we're Christians for very long. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. That would be a great statement if it were just on its own. But if, well, Jesus is where we think he is. But if they were celebrating their festival of lights during that time, it even makes it more pronounced. God led, God delivered, God provided, God is gracious to his people. And Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light. I'm the one standing here before you. I'm the light of the world. And let's think about how John, well, Jesus, in John's gospel account, how he uses world. He uses it in different senses. And it would seem best to see here in light of our context that he uses it in, in a couple of ways that could be complementary. I am the light of the world. I am the, the light for, for all different kinds of people. He for sure uses it that way. I am the, the delivering light. I am the providing God, the providing light for not just the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. I'll sign up for that view. Also, in addition, in light of the, the light-darkness contrast we're going to see here, uh, light being good, darkness being related to sin. I want to read it that way as well. I am the light providing life and guidance to the sinful world, to the world that is in darkness. It's salvation kind of terminology. If you're in darkness, you can't see, you can't function, you can't act correctly. You don't know what's going on. Well, that certainly is true in the dark world of sin. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm the deliverer. I'm the light. I'm the guide. I'm the savior. I'm the light of the world. It's a huge, wonderful, extraordinary declaration. I'm here to help like no one else can help. I am the light. Also, think in terms of if he's the light of the world and there's only one world, it's definitely a statement of inclusivity, right? I am the light of the world. I'm not just the light of some obscure kind of weird sect or the Jews only. I'm the light of the world. I, I'm, I'm the inclusive light. But as I like to remind you, that also on the other side of it means he's the exclusive light. I'm not one of many lights in the world. I am the light of the world, which is going to complement the things he's going to say. If you want to have life from the light, he's going to definitely uh, take us down this road. You've got to come to him. I am the light of the world. He's the one that can help. He's the only one that can help. Then comes the implication and benefit. Look at verse 12 where he goes on to say, Whoever follows me, broad, inclusive, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You don't have to live in, in 
chaos and misdirection, spiritual darkness in particular, will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So notice darkness is associated with death. I love the whoever. So race, sex, education, background, culture, religion. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. Super broad. No wonder he's called the savior of the world. A couple of of other important things here to, to see. When he says the life, the light of life. If you read chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, you know that Jesus speaks of life as eternal life. So we wouldn't expect a change here. I'm the light of a life. I'm the light of eternal life. I'm the one. We should also keep in mind when he says, follow me. So if you follow me, you'll have this. Whoever follows me. So far, what we've seen, the pattern is, believe in me, rest in me, trust in me, rely upon me to do the work. If you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. And so let's read that in context. When he says, follow me for eternal life, he's using that as a synonym, as another word for believing. It's not like, yeah, we got to really start following and work real hard here. He's going to get to that, by the way. He's going to get to how if you're a believer in Jesus, you do need to be devoted and committed to following him. But don't read, don't, don't read human efforting into the follow idea here. It's, it's premature. He's had a pattern already. Believe eternal life. Believe eternal life. Now it's follow eternal life. I'm the one. We'll get to follow example later, but right now it's you listen to me. You're my disciple in that sense. It's just such a huge thing for him to say this. Then comes an objection in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Not bad. Apart from the fact they don't know who they're dealing with. That's a good objection. You've made these grandiose claims. By the way, if we don't think that claim is grandiose, we're, we're, we're reading it wrongly. They know he's making grandiose claims. They have no doubt. And they're saying, but you can't say that because you and you alone are saying it. And, and you have to have witnesses to prove something. Specific number two. Jesus is the unmatched testifier Jesus is the testifier, if you want. Jesus is the ultimate witness. Before we actually look at the text, I, I can't help myself. He, he, he's going to say, I, I don't need some other kind of witness because of who I am. But I want you to know in chapter 5, he actually talked about other witnesses. Okay, so it's, it's not that Jesus said, I came, I made these claims, and there's no corroboration, there's no support, there's, there are no other witnesses. He's doing it here, and he's doing it so that it provides an opportunity for him to show his greatness in relationship to his Father. But please remember, he has talked about, he's done miracles, he's had John the Baptist, 
He's had the prophets. He's had, on other occasions in chapter 5, he actually was soliciting, he was actually calling upon many other witnesses. Okay? I don't want to take the time to read it now. I actually do want to take the time, but I'm not going to. Chapter 5, verses 31 and following. Just a sample. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And then he starts giving the other testimonies. So just keep that in mind. But now he's on purpose going to not call upon those other testimonies. On purpose, because it'll allow him to show that he is not like others. See, you have to have other witnesses because people don't always tell the truth. People don't always remember things the right way. Sometimes it's deceptive. Sometimes it's just accidental. And we're going to see that Jesus is not sinful and Jesus doesn't forget things. Jesus, it's going to provide a platform to show that he's utterly unique having come from heaven. So in that sense, he doesn't need another one. That's a long intro to actually get to the verses. Okay, here, here we go. 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. See, he's saying something different than he said in chapter 5 because he's making a different point. For I know where I came from. He came from heaven and where I am going to heaven. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. He's saying, I'm unique. I'm unique because of where I came from. It assumes he's unique because of who he is. Fifteen says, you judge according to the flesh. Seems like what, what, what he means is they, they, they judge based upon appearances only, what they can see. And then Jesus says, look there, I judge no one. And what I would write down in my margin is, at least not like you do. Jesus doesn't mean in no way, shape, or form does he judge. But he doesn't judge based upon the appearances and what you can see in the temporal, in the here and now. I say that because in John 5, 22, Jesus said, For the Father has given all judgment to the Son. But I don't judge the way you judge. And by the way, when we keep reading and we get to chapter, verse 19, he definitely judges. 16, let's go to verse 16. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Oh, okay. I'm going to put my finger there just for a second and say, if that's all we had to go on, I, well, I would still be obligated to believe it. <laughs> but this is in a context. This is in a greater picture where he's had the external evidences and he's had all these other testimonies and eyewitnesses. In a sense, I, I'm going to be careful. I don't want to be a heretic by accident. Just know he's not saying this in isolation. He's done all the other stuff too and had all the other witnesses also. But here he's not calling upon those things. 17 says, in your law, 
It is written that the testimony of two people is true. Verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. He's not being irrational. He's not being illogical. He's not being uh, anti-law. He's not being unbiblical. He's saying, according to your law, I'm legitimate. But it, it definitely pushes things, right? The only way this could possibly be true is if he really did come from heaven. The only way. Which, by the way, is where we started in chapter 1. And it's been going throughout the gospel according to John that he's different, he's unique, he's come from somewhere else, and so he has every right. Let's move on. Specific number two about Jesus that everyone should know, Jesus is untouchable. Jesus is untouchable. How about verse 19? They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. By the way, that's judging. <laughs> right? Where's your, where's your father? Always want to take it to the here and now. He's like, you don't, you don't know me. You, you, you're confused about who I am and you're confused about who my father is. If you knew me, you would know my father also. I mean, try that on religious leaders. You don't know the first thing about me and you don't know the first thing about God. These, those are fighting words. I mean, he, he's dressing them down. He is exposing them. He is helping people to not be enslaved to false teachers. If you knew me, you'd know my father. You don't know me, you don't know him. You don't know the first thing. It's very... Again, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, this is, this is so far out there, you should run. But if he really came from heaven and so he knows things, I'm like, okay, now what? We've already seen in chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 19, chapter 7, verse 25, they're trying to kill him. They, they know what he's getting at. They know what he's saying. It's not that they've... No, let's move on. Verse 20. He's, there's a whole mess of negative going on here. Verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury. This is in the temple, treasury area. As he taught in the temple... But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Untouchable. The most offensive, the, the most charged place there could be. Because it's where you go to meet with God and the religious leaders tell the people who God is and what He's like and what He's pleased with and what He's not pleased with. They're the authorities. And He said, you don't know the first thing about God. We already know they've been trying to kill Him. 
And here, they can't do anything. Maybe it's like when you're dreaming, right? And the shark is trying to get you and you can't beat it off because you can't do anything and it's slow motion. You ever had that dream? I have weird dreams. You can't do it. You can't move. It's probably not like that, but we needed a little bit of levity. But the, the idea is Jesus is in control. Jesus is sovereign. God's purposes, God's plan, His redemptive plan is going according to plan and nothing can divert that plan from being carried out. Things are on target. There is no derailing this. It's all purposeful. And I want to encourage you with that. I mean, the same Savior you're trusting in, if you're trusting in Jesus, is the one who not only did all of these things according to plan and nothing could stop him, nothing could touch him until the appropriate ordained time. Well, that's the same God you trust in for your eternal redemption. It's extraordinary. And by the way, if this is a plan, and we know that it is, that originates in eternity past, according to the purposes of the triune God, in one sense, it shouldn't surprise us that they couldn't lay a finger on him because it certainly isn't going to get messed up all of a sudden here. And it certainly isn't going to get all messed up in your life. This This is extraordinary. His hour had not yet come. I don't want to downplay this, but I do want to bring some application and comfort to your heart in a different sense. Please don't get confused. In a different sense, until your hour comes, you are immortal. I think that's what I think it was David Livingston. That's what fueled his confidence in being a missionary in Africa. Till my hour comes. I am immortal. Yeah. This is awesome. But better yet, because we're talking about Jesus and who, who gives us that confidence. This, should, this, this shouldn't surprise us. How about that? But it should impress us and it should encourage us. Number four, Jesus is not a way to heaven. Jesus is not a way to heaven. Here's an I am statement from Jesus that doesn't usually come to mind. We usually think, I am the bread of life. Yes. I am. Well, here's a different kind of I am statement. So he said, verse 21, he said to them again, I am. Here's an I am statement of Jesus that's going to kind of be a jaw dropper. I am going away. I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, there's another I am, I am going, you cannot come. The door to heaven is barred. And he's saying to these guys, you you cannot come. I mean, this is heavy stuff. This is an impossibility. 
And we're going to get to the fact that it's because they, not, they don't believe in him. He's not a way to heaven. Jesus is making it clear that they're rejecting him and therefore the door to heaven is absolutely secured and they will never, ever, ever enter. Serious. Jesus will be there, right? And notice he says, we know what he's getting at when he says, you will die in your sin. If you have sin, you have rebellion, so you have guilt. And God is just to hold it against you. So if you die in your sin, you die with your problem. You die in a state of rebellion against God, and there are consequences. And so if God is fair, and he is, they die in their consequences. This is super heavy. Cannot come. We're going, well, we've already seen it, and that's because in verse 12, they don't trust in him. They don't follow him and have the light of life. How about verse 22? So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? That's an odd response, huh? You go, what? Because, but in their mind, wherever he goes, we can get him. With the exception of him committing suicide, which according to Jewish tradition, not the Bible, according to Jewish tradition, if you commit suicide, you go to hell. And they know they're not going to hell. So their conclusion is, he's going to commit suicide. That's the only way this could be possible. As a footnote, by the way, Jewish tradition has changed since Masada, and now suicide is actually virtuous in certain senses in Jewish tradition. Uh, but you'll have to go to Israel with us to learn about that. Oh, we have an Israel meeting today. Not even planned. They're confused. Because there's no way in the world they, of all people, could be kept from heaven in their minds. And you know, and I know, and any reader of this text knows, Jesus is saying that very thing. Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. Then he explains what he means. You are of this world, the below sphere realm. I am not of this world, the above sphere realm. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe, there we go, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Apart from embracing me as the one, that I am He, the one who is the light of life, the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the great covenant servant, the great deliverer, it's all about me. And no, He's not an egomaniac. He's the only one who came from heaven and who is the only Son. And so it's not wrong for him to make these claims. But he's making it clear that he's not a way. He's the way. He'll say that in chapter 14, as you know. God only had one son who's going to provide perfect atonement, who's going to provide perfect redemption. 
This is why we're called in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, right? Because there's only one who has all authority. There's only one who is the Son. We read Isaiah 40. No, we read 52. Just as a cross-reference, you might want to write it down um, from verse 24 where he says, I am He. So much of what comes up in John is in Isaiah. It's Isaiah Messiah language. Listen to Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 11, where this comes from. You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Okay, Jesus is, is given this label of servant oftentimes. Um, it's, uh, it's a covenant servant, the one who is going to do the right thing, the one who has vowed and sworn under oath to do the right thing and to bring fulfillment. Okay, Servant in that sense. My covenant servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. That's our kind of language. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no other. Now, I think of Isaiah 53 as a, as a slam-dunk monotheism passage. There's only one God. And so I talk to other people from other religions who believe in many gods and they might become God and have their own planet and their celestial wives and all this stuff. I go to Isaiah 43. But I have to confess to you, I usually forget that, that Jesus is in Isaiah 43. Unless you believe that I am not the second God, it's a monotheism text. Unless you believe that I am the one true God, oh, by the way, he's a triune God. And here it's being referenced to Jesus. This is starting to get deep and significant. It's getting us ready for later in chapter 8 where he says, before Abraham was, what? I am. It's a, it's a claim to be the one true and living God. This is, this is complicated in a good way. You're going to die in your sins, you who profess to be super-duper monotheists, because you actually don't even get it and understand it. Unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. Man. I hope you're having a good time learning some of this stuff, because I just have a great time learning it. He's not a way, he's the way. He's the God. He is the light of the world who brings eternal life. But, 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 but what about this? But what about that? But what about the? But I don't know. What about it? Yeah, but I know somebody who believes. All I have are the words of Jesus. This does become complicated to the point where now we maybe understand why some of his disciples didn't follow him anymore. And they went somewhere else. And Jesus says to Peter, do you want to go too? Where else should I go? <laughs> See, Peter, Peter doesn't understand a lot of things, but he understands some things well. Where else should we go? Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Evangelicals were surveyed recently with this question. 
true or false. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Self-identified evangelicals to the tune of 46% agreed with that. I don't even know what to say. No wonder we don't evangelize. (laughs) I, I don't even know where to begin. See, I want to evangelize people who say they're Christians. And I want to evangelize people who say they're Muslims. And people who say they're Hindus. And people who say they're atheists. And people who say they're... And the list just goes on. I want to evangelize everybody, right? Because I know Jesus says, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And if that's true, I want to tell people the good news. Like we heard about in Isaiah 52. That's what I want to do. It's not about being against some group or uh, we're not talking about being mean to anybody. I want to tell people about hope and forgiveness and life. But if you want to make a difference in the world, just know the gospel, what it is, and communicate it, and you'll make a difference in the world. And you'll honor the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be showing love for your neighbor, and you will be doing something that apparently 46% of evangelicals don't do. By the way, evangel is good news. Jesus is the good one. He's the ultimate evangel. Evangelism, sharing the good news about Jesus... And evangelical comes from the fact that they're called gospel people. So the word doesn't mean anything anymore. But we should be evangelicals in a good sense. Okay, number five. We should probably not do number five. Seven is short, but five and six. Okay. We're going to end on that note, okay? Sorry. If you're excited um, and you're super happy that we're going to leave, awesome. I love you too. Um, I was thinking of you personally. Um, If you're bummed, I was thinking of everybody else. I'm sorry. Just be the mature brother or sister. (laughs) Let's leave remembering that Jesus loves sinners and so he says these things okay the most hateful thing he could do would be to lie about how to get to heaven so we want to be loving sinners also because we've been loved and we want to speak truthfully compassionately clearly that's what we want to do We want to have beautiful feet who bring good news, right? That's what we want to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for even hard words like these words. They're great words because we know who they come from. And we are grateful that you use the gospel in extraordinary ways, uh, even though we're ordinary kinds of people. So right now I would pray for those who are here who are in school, 
who are in the home, taking care of kids, who are working, who are retired. Hopefully everyone. Lord, that we would be burdened for uh, those around us, that we would want to tell them the truth about Jesus, not because we're so smart, but because sin is so bad. And life and death are really what's at stake. Give us a lot of fruit, we would ask for. In Jesus' name, amen.